With the federal election looming, Facebook has already been hit with issues surrounding ad campaign transparency. This week on Download This Show, is it possible for social media to be a responsible player in democracy? Also, the world's richest man, Elon Musk, not satisfied with owning the most Twitter shares, wants to simply buy the whole thing. But can he just do that? Plus, Australian Border Force officials have searched hundreds of phones without a warrant. What are your rights when it comes to the contents of your smartphone? All this and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Ray Johnston and welcome to Download This Show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. Ray Johnston here, filling in for Mark Fennell, and it is a pleasure to welcome our guests for today. We have Peter Marks, National Technology Editor and Analyst with Access Informatics. Welcome back, Peter. Thanks, Ray. Good to be back. And welcoming for the very first time, Manal Al-Sharif, author and presenter of the Tech for Evil podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, we're going to get right into it with a bit of Elon Musk Twitter chat. Now, last week we did see Elon become Twitter's largest shareholder. We spoke about that on the program, if you want to go back and have a listen. But now he wants to take it one step further. What does he want to do, Peter? Well, Mr. Musk is proposing not just to be an investor, but to buy the entire company. On Wednesday, April 13, he sent the company a letter that contained a proposal to buy the remaining shares of Twitter for $54.20 US per share, which puts a valuation of the company at about US $43 billion. Now, at the time, that was a 54% premium over the market value. But of course, that price has now, now risen to above the offer price. He said the bid was his best and final offer, but that, of course, might just be a negotiating tactic. Musk himself is said to be worth $264 billion, so you could think that he might stretch a bit more if he wished. (laughs) But, Ray, Twitter's growth has stalled and the share price is well down on what it peaked at a few years ago. So Musk thinks he can turn it around somehow and make a good return on his investment. And how does the board feel about him and his plans to buy Twitter, Manal? It's very interesting watching this debate in the in the I don't think he's going to make it. A lot of people in the board making it impossible for him to take over the company completely. So my my guess I don't think he'll make it. How have they made it impossible? What steps have they taken to stop it happening, Peter? Well, the board has adopted what's known as a poison pill strategy. It's a move to prevent anyone from owning any more than 15% uh, 15 stake. And what they do is they've changed the rules so that it allows existing shareholders to buy extra shares at a discount and, of course, freezes out Musk. Now, the poison pill plan will expire on April 14, 2023, and Chief Executive Parag Agrawal has said that the company will not be held hostage by by uh, Musk's offer. Why do we think that Elon Musk wants Twitter? What what will he do with this platform, you know? Most people who are rich and have so much money, they are after power. They're not after um, they're really not after making more money because I don't think he will make more money from Twitter. 
And, and Elon Musk see the potential in that. Most rich people, what they do the first thing when they became so rich, when they become so rich, they go and buy media, media newspapers, the Washington Post being bought by Jeff Bezos. I think this is the new media, which is Twitter. He wants to buy it and he wants to just remove all the rules that are in place. He, he claims he want, he gave a TED talk after his announcement. And he said, I want to protect the freedom of expression. And he sees Twitter as that platform that people can exchange ideas freely. Still debatable, that big claim. He's also said he's got a bit of a backup plan. He, he did speak about before coming out and talking about wanting to just straight up buy Twitter. What's his backup plan, Peter? Yes, he said he had a plan B, very mysterious. Look, I can think of four possible scenarios. He could find, because he's being blocked at 15% by the poison pill, so he could find six friends who have Twitter shares and have them take advantage of the discount to each buy 15% and then they could form together as an agreeable group. Uh, Secondly, um, Musk has a history of saying disruptive things on social media. In fact, uh, just recently a judge found that he he had made a misleading tweet about Tesla. He was saying that uh, something about financing, which is strictly illegal, he might actually sell his shares and then uh, publicly say that Twitter is overpriced and, uh, you know, the price has gone up because of his offer, but it would then crash. He could then sweep back in with his offer or even a lower offer. Uh, thirdly, he's, well, even though he has said his offer is final and the maximum, he could still form a consortium to fund a higher bid that the board might accept. And finally, you know, a radical option is he could fund his own Twitter-style competitor, much like uh, Trump's Truth Social has shown. But as as Trump has found, it's not easy to launch even a copy of Twitter these days. There's so much infrastructure there. So, Ray, um, Musk might say inappropriate things, but he's clearly good at building engineering companies. I mean, he's, he's built Tesla, SpaceX and Starlink, so he can actually execute. But I think many people, including myself, are sceptical that he has the skills to run a social media business, though, and, and all of that in what that entails. Ah, and he wants to move, move – uh, he wants to remove the advertisement – most of the revenue comes from that. And he, like, do want that revenue. And he want to ban advertisements. So that's interesting, his plan. To- if he's banning advertisements on the platform, how is he expecting it to make money? Through the Twitter Blue subscription models or, or something else? I think subscription. He's moving to subscription. And I agree with the subscription model because the data abuses by these platforms will be not will be non-existent and the other thing you the algorithm wouldn't push the things that been paid for and wouldn't push the things that should go viral make people more engaged so the algorithm will be organic when twitter started it was really organic reach you reach people because you you're delivering good content not because your content is actually making a physiologic arousal in people anger and fear and i think that's that was the plan it's just remove the algorithm that control what you see, what get prioritized on your feed. And by the way, I'm not on Twitter. Do you find it peaceful not being on Twitter? I closed my Twitter account live on stage. I was giving a speech in Singularity U in Scandinavia. And I had like 300,000 followers. And I was making a statement how Saudi Arabian government been using all these bots and trolls to yes, create yes. trends and push those trends to be worldwide trends. And I was monitoring that in disbelief 
that your the, the content, the, the good content, being washed out by those bots and trolls. And that's when I knew I just lost it. Twitter that year actually introduced the. Um, they were removing a lot of fake accounts and they were introducing a lot of measures in place to make sure that those bots being shut down. Um, I don't, and also close hundreds of thousands of accounts and they've been publishing all these accounts in their transparent, transparency report. But I, I still don't think I can go back to Twitter. It's, it's mental health um, uh, been better after re- removing it from my phone. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And with the Australian federal election upon us, you may have started to see ads popping up on social media. So how is social media being used for the upcoming election campaign, Peter? Well, carefully targeted advertising is being used to show a different message to different voters depending on their interests. Uh, Labor noted in their 2019 election loss review that they had failed to adopt a web-first approach and that left them flat-footed and behind their opponents. So they've turned that ship around, presumably. At the last election, social media advertising was actually relatively cheap, but since then, Facebook's average price per ad has increased 24% year-on-year. And, of course, Clive Palmer's United Australia Party is back and they're spending even more money, a record sum again this year, and that will push up prices. Uh, Apple has frustrated uh, some of the social media a bit by tightening the tracking on its platforms and uh, this has had a big impact on Facebook. Tell me about what's happened with Facebook's ad tracker, Manal. So they introduced this, if you remember the US election when there was foreign interference, paying for advertisement and it was run, those accounts were run by the Russians. So Facebook was put under the spotlight and they had to introduce a feature that guarantee there is a transparency of political ads spending. Although I'm, I disagree that they allow political ads on Facebook. So they introduced this feature, which is the ad tracker, and it shows you that each party, how much money they're spending on their political ads on Facebook and the groups they target. This ad tracker being... Um, um, not working since the first day of election. So now journalists can track how much parties are spending on their uh, political advertisement on Facebook. I Anything Facebook says, I have this hate relationship with Facebook. I don't believe it because of their, their record of a lot of privacy abuses throughout all the years, they, they, they never stood to, the, to their word. They, uh, there's always um, an explanation of when when such data abuses happen, such uh, privacy violations happen. And it's not coincidence that your ad tracker is not functioning on the first day of the election. You don't think it's a coincidence? I don't think it's a coincidence. coincidence. Like Facebook doesn't have a history, um, or meta, now they call it meta, they don't have a history uh, that proves that they, are, that they have good intentions when these things happen. I still question anything Facebook comes and, 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 and uh, they tell us. I always question it. I take it with a grain of salt. So this data, not being able to access information about how much is being spent on these ads on Facebook, why is it important for us to be able to have that information? What can we do with it? And what does it mean if we don't have it, Peter? Well, as Manal just mentioned, uh, it's important to know 
who is paying for an ad. I mean, if you've got ads that are just trying to spread misinformation, as has happened in the past, including in the US, um, <clears throat> uh, the rules have been tightened in Australia so that all political advertising has to have uh, an attribution as to where it's from. But, you know, people can make up all sorts of names. So this report, the they actually call it the Ad Library Report, it allows voters, uh, transparency advocates and political groups to see how much money the candidates, parties or any other campaigners are spending and broadly where that money is being spent, like targeting different states. I mean, Meta has acknowledged that there's an issue and they are working to resolve it, but it's it's um, it, it's one of the measures. They have also uh, cut back on the targeting that can be done. So some of the targeting in the past could use all sorts of information. If you've ever bought ads on Facebook, which I have in the past, it's amazing what you can actually target people on. And now they've dumbed that down a bit or they've, they've made a lot of things uh, not available anymore. You can do age, you can do gender and you can do postcode, post so where people are, what electorate and so on. But they've taken away some of the things like they've taken away religion, your political affiliations and sexuality. So they have sort of dumbed it down a little bit, but still you'd be amazed how people can actually infer things just from your age and postcode, for example, and then use that to target a different message from parties to what other people see. Now, Facebook is one of the few platforms that still do allow political advertising, despite their fraught history with it, I think it's fair to say. So where would we expect to see ads for the election coming up on social media? Like, Twitter's not doing it anymore. Where, where else would we be able to see these ads, Manal? So... I know Google and Facebook are so far are the biggest social media. Google, I call it advertising company. I don't call it search company anymore. And Facebook, I call it tracking company. <laughs> so those two companies, they should ban it. Like Twitter did it. I think they can do it, but they don't want to. Um, and not only political parties advertisement that's troubling, it's things like fossil fuel companies. They spent $10 million uh, in 2020. Uh, in 2020 uh, one, I think, was the number, if I'm not mistaken. And they were targeting a, a specific age group, the young people, to show that they are part of the solution. And that's actually delaying the climate change action. So you see the harms of using digital advertising. And we have a whole episode on Tech for Evil of why it should be banned, not only like um, banned completely, political parties. We should all see the same advertisement in the, mm. the, the way that our, answer, our previous generations seen instead of being harbour targeted. And for me, that's also a violation of my privacy. Do you think Facebook would ever get to a point where they think it is just too much trouble, they're under too much scrutiny, they can you know, get in too much trouble, follow the path of the other social media platforms and, and ban political advertising, Peter? Oh, there's a lot of money slushing around in an election campaign. Um, you know, in the last, uh, the 30 days to April 11, the United Australia Party alone spent $136,000 with Meta. I doubt that they would turn that down. Look, if, if I was the president of the Republic of Australia, like Manal, I would, I'd do two things. I'd ban all political donations and I'd ban all paid advertising. And uh, we just have the party leaders would have to state their case and it would be have to be the same message, the same policies shown to all voters. This idea of having two faces is just undemocratic. 
You are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston, filling in for Mark Fennell, and I'm joined by Peter Marks, National Technology Editor and Analyst with Access Informatics, and Manal Al-Sharif, author and presenter of the Tech for Evil podcast. And reports have revealed that Australian Border Force, they've searched 822 phones in 2021. And, th- and this is despite them actually having no power to demand passcodes to be able to get into those phones. How did Border Force officers do this exactly, Manal? Uh, that was surprising to me that they ask the traveller to write down the passcode on a piece of paper and they would just go to another room and spend half an hour or whatever time they want to go through the device. Because there are jailbreaker devices that I know the AFP in Australia uses. It's an Israeli company. I can't remember the name of the device. But all you need, you don't even need a passcode. You just plug in any phone and it breaks the phone and copies all the content within minutes. So I'm very surprised they use, <laughs> they don't have access to that device that the Australian government have. That's more concerning for me. But yeah, they just ask you to give them your passcode and, and without even a warrant. And that, that, that's really troubling. Is what they've done illegal though? Because I, I would assume that because they have asked for those passcodes they are getting permission, essentially, from the people that are handing over their phones. Have have they done the wrong thing? It's They should have a warrant and a reason in the warrant. It has to tell a reason of why they need to search a phone. This is invasion of privacy. This is, this is um, a violation of digital rights. And I think people need to know their digital rights. So they would say no, and they know it's still legal for them to... Uh, uh, object and say, no, I'm not going to give you my, the password. But you're coming, you're coming through the borders and they use something called the custom laws to um, ask to have access to people's phones. And I, I think people really need to be more educated. And, and that's what we try to do. We try to educate people about their digital rights and when it's been violated. So they are empowered with the knowledge to reject um, such violation, to say no. You can have access to my phone unless you, there is a warrant explaining why you need access to my phone and what data you're trying to access on my phone. So what rights exactly do we have if something similar to this happens to us? Could us as passengers you know, coming into the country, could we refuse the Border Force officers to have access to our phones, Peter? Yes, in theory, uh, you can refuse to give your passcode, but it sounds like uh, Border Force has a policy that if you do refuse and they decide that you are, uh, quote, a risk to the border, they can then seize your device for further examination. There's no actual time limit, but they claim they have a policy of only keeping devices for up to 14 days. Now, uh, as, as Manal said, uh, there is software, there's a piece of hardware and software. I think the company you're thinking of is Cellbrite. And they oh, have yes, a, a, Cellbrite, a box the Israeli company. The Yes, that's right, Israeli, and they sell they sell this product to law enforcement around the world. But actually, there was they were hacked uh, not so long ago, and um, data was exfiltrated about their customers. And they also sell to Turkey, the UAE, and Russia. So they're not um, purely on the side of law and order, you might say. Yes. Yeah, so this device uh, exploits. Um, 
bugs in iOS and it gets into the phone through the lightning port and is able to copy all of the data out of a phone without unlocking it. Now, it does rely on security problems in iOS and Apple, of course, is very aggressively trying to uh, to fix those. So, yeah, if you say no, um, basically what they punish you by keeping your device for longer, they probably can get the data out. I mean, there's a few things you can do. Um, one of them, of course, is to uh, keep your phone right up to date with all the security updates. In the last month, there have been several updates from Apple that presumably block some of these exploits. Um, but, you know, the other thing you can do is... Uh, Take, if you're worried, is take a burner phone, take a phone that has nothing in it except a SIM and uh, just use that while you're travelling. Um, a Reddit commenter on this topic uh, had a good suggestion, which is uh, uh, before you cross a border, back up your phone to the cloud, then wipe the phone, cross the border. When you're through, restore your phone from backup. So they can do whatever they like on the phone. There's nothing on there at all. And of course, you get all of your data back. Peter, do we know why they searched these phones in the first place? Look, the the guy that um, told the story, James, is a software developer and he spoke to The Guardian and he reported that he and his partner were stopped on the return from Fiji. So who knows? I mean, somehow they triggered some sort of alert. I mean, I know customs do things like, you know, they observe travellers to see if their pulse rate is up or, you know, it's it's all a dark art. So we don't know. And I think that's the reason why it is important to have some sort of explanation, particularly if, you, if your device is being um, copied, because not only does that impact your own privacy, but this has an impact. There was a case um, in uh, somebody in the EU whose device was inspected like this. And then he, under the under the law there, he had to then go and tell all of his clients that it's possible that their data had been compromised. So it has it has kick-on effects, all of the things your phone connects to. It's not just your contacts and your mail and your messages, but it might also log into corporate um, sites, into the cloud. It's got all of your history. What about a journalist who perhaps has been talking to a whistleblower? I mean, the impacts are, go well beyond the person. It's quite different to searching your bag. Searching your mobile device is a different ball altogether. And I think that they're they're taking the broadest possible uh, interpretation of the Customs Act to be doing this. But we also have two ways that so the identity the Identify and Disrupt Act that was passed in August last year in Australia, it allows uh, um, uh, law enforcement authorities in Australia to gain access to your account, social media accounts, your email, remotely. So they don't even need access to your phone anymore. So if they decide to have access, they can go to the company, say, we, have, um, uh, we need to go through this account. They hand them the passwords or they break into the account for you. And they can copy, alter, delete, suspend the account if they wish. And that's even scarier because you don't even need to have physical access and ask people to give you the passcode. You could be already access, they've seen everything in your phone or in your social media accounts and emails, and you will be the last one to know. That's, I think, even more scarier uh, of invading uh, people's privacy. So theoretically, they could also access anything that you have in the cloud, for instance. Yep, they can. So even uh, backing up your data to the cloud, if they decide to access that, they can. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And still on data, tracking athletes' performance has become the norm and it makes sense for their profession. 
But is it a slippery slope? Peter, to what extent are we collecting and tracking data about athletes? Why do we need that information? Well, I guess it's for performance enhancement. Um, but a discussion paper released by the 12-member expert working group convened by the Australian Academy of Science has revealed that personal information is being collected on and off the field from sensors, from video-based monitoring of athletes' bodies during competition and training, but it includes intimacies, things like mental health, sleep quality, food intake, and even menstruation. So presumably this is being used to optimise performance, but the growth, the, the, the white paper says that the growth of personal information collection has outpaced the scientifically proven benefits to athletes. Do we think that this is something that could start to appear in other workplaces if it's normalised for athletes to effectively have their employer tracking absolutely everything about their bodies? What's to stop our employers doing the same, you know? You will be surprised how many companies, how many apps on your phone are collecting your um, your data. I'll, I'll just give a, a, a small example. Uh, AccuWeather, it comes in all Android phones. Mm. And AccuWeather actually connects to your wearables and collects all your health data. Now, why do I need... Uh, why this app needs to know my heart rate to show me if it's going to rain today or not. That's a very good so, question. <laughs> that's, that's because there are no regulations set the limit on the amount of data they collect on you. The Privacy Act in Australia defines personal data that identifies you, things like your name and age and address, but that's not enough. Now, today, in the digital age, I have a lot of personal data that identifies me, my IP, my device ID, my geotag, where you know where I'm, I'm going, the websites I'm visiting, all these traces behind. Today, uh, with the pandemic, the rise of private surveillance by your, co by your workplace risen for 50% around the world. And the first world countries or the Western world countries but actually, the, the, the ones who are buying these uh, private surveillance more than anyone else, where they can, um, when they give you the laptop, the, the private surveillance app is a, application is on your laptop. They can turn on the camera and the mic at random times. They can take screenshots of what you're doing. Uh, they can know everything you're doing on your laptop without even your knowledge. So imagine you're sitting in your living room with your family, having a private conversation with your wife or husband or partner, and your employer actually can access that. And unfortunately, because there's no privacy act in Australia that protects the citizen, your, co your work, your employer can do that today. Um, as long as we don't regulate the amount of data and the type of data and why and for how long it's going to be retained, like what's happening in the European Union, the general data protection regulation, we will face these violations on bigger and bigger and bigger scale. Uh, one of the things that, that um, um, really concerned me the most in the Privacy Act, it only applies to companies with turnover less than uh, more than $3 million. Do you know how many startups? I work in the largest startup hub in Australia, tech startup. Those companies don't make $3 million a year, and they are allowed to collect as much data about you as they want because the law doesn't stop them. That what really worries me. Manal, you work in cybersecurity. What steps can we take to keep ourselves safe online, to keep our data a little bit more to ourselves? I will share with you a link, 
And that link is a check, it's called cybersecurity checklist. If you, are a da if you use um, smartphones or if you use any digital device, go through that checklist. It contains things like password managers, ad blockers, uh, uh, how to use encryption, and it's easy and accessible. So I'll share the link with you and you may share it with the listeners. And unfortunately, that is all we have time for on the show today. Thank you to Peter Marks, National Technology Editor and Analyst with Access Informatics. Great to have you back. Great to be here. Good to talk to you, Ray. And a big thank you to Manal Al-Sharif, author and presenter of the Tech for Evil podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope to have you back again soon. Thank you. I'm Ray Johnston, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.